Uh, as I mentioned, if you were here last time, this is review. If you were not here, uh, I'm starting or have started a verse-by-verse study through Lamentations. We're calling it, uh, not super creative, Learning Lamentations, the title. If you come up with something better, let me know. We'll change it. And uh, but, but no, I, I actually made it a little bit general because while we look at the book of Lamentations, which is only five chapters long, we're also going to learn along the way the broader themes and dynamics involved in the concept of lamentation. As uh, It's interesting, just doing some reading on this, our culture doesn't have an established way of lamenting the way many other cultures have or have had in the past. And we're going to talk about that. Well, what do you do when, when a culture doesn't know how to lament or runs from it or messes it up. And so, so we're, it's, again, the, the more we, we dig in this study, I think the more interesting things we'll get. And, and I don't think it's morbid. I mean, to think about grief and mourning could be a very, very discouraging topic, but that's not how the Bible approaches it. And, and I hope that if I'm doing my job right to reflect what's in the Scripture, you don't walk away you know, sad and discouraged and, and, and feeling like, there's a dark cloud over your head, but, but you walk away feeling equipped and encouraged that God loves us enough to tell us how to handle sadness, because it's inevitable. Um, so uh, let's look at Lamentations and uh, just kind of by way of review, because I know some of you weren't here last week, where have we been, where are we going, uh, where does Lamentations come from? Uh, just looking at the text, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, you notice that the title, the title in my book is The Lamentations of Jeremiah, uh, the uh, internal evidence and external evidence of the book uh, reveals that Jeremiah, the prophet, the guy that wrote the book right in front of Lamentations, is the author of Lamentations. And uh, again, it's a short book, it's five chapters, uh, it's a poem, it's an extended poem, if uh, those of you that are really, really nerdy into language and literature, uh, you would be fascinated to read some of the um, artistic skills and poetic devices that are used here, and I'll bring out some of those along the way. Uh, but just but just if you, you, know, you turn the page, it's your Bible reading plan, Lamentations chapter 1, you open the Bible, and here's how it starts. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. Anybody go down to the square this weekend? You're like, it's 110 degrees outside. Why would I do that? And all those crazy visitors in town. Oh, well, one or two of you did. That's crazy. So, well, well Eric and I were down at the square yesterday. And, and you know what the square's like on a holiday weekend, right? There's wall-to-wall people. There's vendors. There's classic cars. There's, you know, people running around everywhere and kids and grown-ups. And, and it's just, it's just all, it, it's a festive time. And if you've lived in Granbury for, for any season, you know that you can go down to the square a lot of weekends, especially if the weather's nice, or if the weather's lousy, but it's a holiday weekend like this weekend, you're going to see people everywhere, uh, having fun, engaging in, uh, you know, whatever's going on there, crafts or cars or uh, vendors and whatnot. Uh, Just imagine that it's a holiday weekend, like Labor Day, like Memorial Day, like, you know, the Christmas parade, uh, the 4th of July, and, and you went down to the square and it was a ghost town. And maybe you've lived here 20, 30, 40 plus years and you're thinking, it's 4th of July. The parade's so, supposed to be right now. And it's crickets and tumbleweeds. It's like a ghost town. It, it's no cars. The buildings are, the 
doors are boarded up, windows are boarded up. Um, you, you're noticing that what usually looks, you know, very clean and tidy and everything's painted is kind of run down. And that'd be weird, wouldn't it? That that's the picture here as we open the book of Jeremiah. It's, it's the center of the city, that the temple itself, Solomon's. Uh, temple that he built and and in the beauty of that and the sanctuary and the the all that went around that center point of jerusalem jeremiah says it's desolate that place that used to be full of singing and commerce and and uh, families and worship and it's deserted it's it's in shambles it's worn down it's broken down it, and, and the eeriness of that He says, it was once full of people, now it's like a widow. Look at verse 1. Who was once great amongst the nations. She who was a princess among the provinces has become forced labor. You remember, he says that because what's happened is an enemy people has invaded Jerusalem and they've killed thousands of people and carried other thousands back to Babylon to be their slaves and their forced labor. Verse 2, she weeps bitterly in the night. Her tears are on her cheeks. She has none to comfort her. And uh, as, as is so often the case in poetry, what happens is the writer will personify an object. So in this case, what, what Jeremiah is talking about is he's talking about the city of Jerusalem. But you'll notice he uses feminine language like this is a woman, right? That's called personification where we take something that's not a person and we give it attributes of personality to try to explain something important. So in this case, Jeremiah is saying Jerusalem is like this woman that has been widowed, right? She's crying, she's, um, she's weeping, right? There's nobody there to comfort her. Her friends have turned on her, right? They become her enemies. And, and so that, that's how the book starts. It starts with the word, how, right? How can this happen? How could this be desolate? Uh, people have left. It's run down. It's, it's destroyed. And as we, we go on, we, we learn uh, something about that. Look, look down at verse 5. How did this happen, right? What, what would happen to bring about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction and the deportation of God's people. Verse 5, her adversaries have become her masters, her enemies prosper. Why? Verse 5, for the Lord has caused her grief because of the multitude of her transgressions. I want you to see that. One of the things we have to recognize about grief and mourning and lamentation. You ready for this? God's going to do that sometimes. God's going to do things that bring about grief in our life. And that's a challenge, isn't it? Because we we think, I thought God wanted me happy all the time and, and provide for my needs and full of joy and and... But there, we have to have a category in our theology that says sometimes God is going to do things in our life for the purpose of bringing us to a place of mourning and grief. You say, why would He do that? Well, we're going to learn why He would do that. Um, you probably can guess just reading this first little section here. Well, in, in the case of, of the Israelites, the, the nation of Judah that, that 
Jeremiah is writing to, why might God bring this about? I mean, t- take a guess. Why might he do that? What's that, Rob? Their sin, right? Someone else? Yeah, their idolatry. Would it be loving of God when we're living in sin and idolatry to just say, oh, okay. Or is it loving when God does things to see the error of our ways? To help us to see the error of our ways so that we respond in repentance. And that's a big grief and mourning. Godly grief and mourning is a crucial part of our change and growth process. And again, it's like uh, it's like going to the dentist. You know, if if I want to have relief from that pain, you know that 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 or, or maybe that that thing that's going to cause a problem, I might have to undergo some pain to get to a better place. And spiritual growth is like that too. Sometimes we have to go through grief and sorrow and mourning as a means to grow us in the direction that God wants us to grow. Okay, are you with me? So th- there is a godly grief. There is a good mourning. Now in this case. What brought about the grief and mourning is not good. But as we'll see, God's going to use it. Just remember that, that, that God is going to use your grief and sorrow for a good purpose. And we're going to talk about the ways that he does that and how he does it and you know, how do we respond to that. But, but just right out of the gate, that, that's really insightful to see that. So uh, just a reminder, if you weren't here last time, this is not in your notes. This is just review, but... Um, Our author of Lamentations is Jeremiah. He was called, we look back in Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 5, to be a prophet to the nations, but especially to the southern kingdom of Israel called Judah. He preached during the reign of four kings of Judah, Josiah, Jehoiakim, Zedekiah, and, or excuse me, those three kings, Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Zedekiah is the guy in power when Babylon finally breaches the walls and destroys Israel. Jerusalem. We can read about that in those sections there. Jeremiah ministers for over four decades with zero converts. And uh, his life is a testimony. We'll talk, we'll probably do, I'll probably do a whole message just on his life as a biography. It's fascinating. But um, his faithfulness ought to challenge us to be faithful to God even when we don't see successes, when we don't see uh, results. Um, just some history. Um, way, way back in the book of Joshua, there was a prophecy that Israel would be faithless one day. That's 800 years before this happened. And uh, so we know that that was coming in their history. Jeremiah preached to the people, warning them to repent or judgment would come. Destruction of Jerusalem came by the Babylonians. Several places talk about that in the Bible. And Jeremiah witnesses that destruction of the city. That's largely what Lamentations is, is it's a funeral message. For the nation or for the city of Jerusalem. Okay, so here's our chart, our super chart. Uh, again, so for those of you that missed this last time, uh, here's our timeline. And uh, the red section up here describes foreign leaders. So these are some kings of the Median Empire. So you're some kings from the Babylonian Empire, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, and Belshazzar, guys that you remember from the book of Daniel. And then up here we have uh, the Assyrian kings. Of course, Assyria falls in 606 and is taken over by um, the Medes and the Persians and then uh, eventually taken over by the Babylonians, right? And then down here, sort of the colored part, 
we see uh, these green boxes display the kings of Judah. And then what looks like little flags here, these are giving us the uh, prophets and the books that we have in some of our some of the prophetic books in our Old Testament. And you see the, the red stripe means that it's a prophecy to a foreign nation. The green stripe means it's a prophecy to uh, the nation of uh, Judah or Israel. So here we are. Here's Jeremiah. Here's his ministry. He starts in about 626. Uh, he concludes when he is, has to flee to Egypt. And then, of course, 586, that's our red letter date. 586 is when the temple is destroyed. So way back here in uh, 605, where is it? So right about here, Babylon makes their first raid on Judah in 605. Then there's a second campaign right in the middle. And then finally the third campaign, 586, is where they are successful in uh, entering the city and destroying the temple and the walls. Okay, So that gives you a little bit of an idea. So there's our timeline. About 625, he's called by God. Babylonia begins in 605, finishes it in 586. And then Jeremiah goes to Egypt in 583. Um, I was going to tell you guys this last time, what would be really, really cool, I don't want to take you away from whatever Bible reading plan you're doing, but uh, read through the book of Jeremiah while we're studying Lamentations is a great way to kind of have a, a historic parallel, the background of what we're reading here. Okay, so I want to try to answer the question for you today. What does, it, what does lament mean? Like, like what is that and how do we think about it? And so when we read about the book of Lamentations, uh, remember, <laughs> remember the, the, uh, the title of the book in Hebrew? What, what's the title of the book of Lamentations in Hebrew? How. How like with a question mark, right? So it's how, like how could this happen? How could this be? And uh, that's the name of the book. And uh, so when we think about a lamentation, we're thinking, what's going on? How, what, what, how could this happen? How could this be? Um, so let me give you some categories. This is review from last time. And then what I want to do for the most of today is take you through the Bible. And I want to show you examples of mourning and lament so we can, we can begin to, to... We're really building a theology of lamenting is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to give you a, an overview of what, what this really means. So... First of all, just lamentation. What does it mean? It's an expression of sorrow or grief. That's what it is. A lamentation, lamenting, is an expression of sorrow and grief. And um, what we'll see is, I, I, I have not. It's really actually hard to quantify. As you'll see, there's a whole bunch of vocabulary and whatnot. So my my, my working theory on this, subject to change is that the most common way the Bible talks about lamentation and mourning and grief, you ready? Is over our sin. Over our sin. More than grieving over the loss of a loved one, more than grieving over some tragedy or hard thing, nothing wrong with that, we ought to do that. But it's like the Bible piles up examples of what I'm going to argue is the most important kind of grieving and mourning. And that is over your sin. Okay, now I'm getting ahead of myself, but I'm just going to throw this question out, okay? Is grieving over our sin a normal, regular, healthy part of our Christian life? Uh, and as you're thinking about that, what the Bible is going to challenge us with is this thought. 
it ought to be. It ought to be. Um, grieving and sorrowing, mourning over our sin is not some crazy thing that happens to just a few people. It's not weird. It's not a sign of spiritual weakness. Why, Jesus died for our sins. Why are you so upset about this? That, that's not healthy Christianity. Healthy, healthy Christianity is when we sin, we grieve and we mourn. We, 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 don't, we don't die in grief because we have a great Savior, right? But the reality of Christ's work does not undercut or dilute or even remove the important necessity to grieve and mourn over our sin. And we're going to talk about that because maybe you're like, I don't even know what that's like. Or, or maybe you say, when I was a new Christian, I did that a lot. But now that I've been walking with God, I don't do that a whole lot. Well, let, we're going to talk about that. We're, we're rediscovering grief over your sin uh, is part of our journey here along the way. Uh, another feature of lament is to express sorrow or grief in a song. The, and I'll show you this in a minute. There are many times in the Bible where people are going to express grief in either poetry or music. And again, if you flip on your Spotify channel, and most most genres of music today, that have lyrics at least, um, have some sort of like portion of the genre that is about grief. Isn't that interesting? Uh, you, you can go from country to whatever's you know popular kind of kind of pop music today. You can look at you know, 70s, early rock, you, could, right, you can look at any genre and they all have this little section that are sad songs. Isn't that interesting? And, and as I mentioned, it, it's as if God builds into us this way that we feel like we need to express sadness. And, and music is one of those you know, divinely carved channels where our hearts go when we're experiencing sadness and we need to express it. So we'll talk about that. But the, again, the, the Bible pushes this category and says lament. One of the ways we lament is often in a grief or a song. And, and that's, there's a whole book in our Bible that is an inspired lament song. That, that ought to tell us something, huh? That's... that's so, you know, you're not weird if you have a playlist called Sad Songs. You're not weird. You're a normal human being, if that's the case. And then third, uh, lamenting often expresses grief and sorrow for someone. Now, what's interesting, you flip on Spotify, and if we, were, if we could tune into those sad songs, whatever your favorite genre is you would probably hear some similar themes. When you hear sad songs, what do they tend to be talking about? Talk to me here. What do they tend to be speaking about? Loss of love. Okay, so maybe a loved one who dies or a romantic relationship that comes to an end. Isn't that interesting? We're mourning over the loss of someone. Now again, I'm getting ahead of myself, but I, I want you to think about this. I've told you before that one of the reasons God gives us emotions of, of, of every stripe is that our emotions reveal who we really are as persons. Okay, make sense? Your grief 
and mourning and sadness tells what you love and value. That's what it does. And that's why it's so important. If you grieve and sorrow and and mourn over your grandmother who died, that reveals that you probably valued her and loved her, right? Again, this is not like super profound. I'm just trying to make connections here, okay? If I don't grieve over my sin like maybe I ought to, what does that say about my love for God? You see that? Grieving, mourning, reveals what we love. Or in some cases, what we don't love. Are you with me? Is this making sense? Okay. So we have another category called grieving for someone. So, so watch this. You, you can grieve and express that to God. You can grieve and express that to somebody else. Or sometimes the, the, the preposition changes and you're grieving over somebody. You, you see this at funerals, right? Where they walk past the casket and they stop and they break down right there. That's what we're talking about. It's a mourning or grief over the person. Does that make sense? So there's, there's different ways that grief kind of manifests itself here. And then often, as I mentioned, grief is an expression of sorrow or mourning to God. So maybe grandma dies and I've mourned over her, I've grieved for her, but now I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm heavy, right? I've got this sadness in my heart and it's overwhelming. And the Bible demonstrates that one way we ought to deal with that is to express that to God. Uh, the New Testament will say things like this, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Uh, come to me, Jesus says, you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Right? There's these calls to take the heaviness that you're bearing, often because of grief and sorrow, and bring it to the Lord. And you'll see those invitations throughout the Bible. Okay, So that, that's what lamenting is. Lamenting, in, in its simplest form, a lament is an expression of grief and sorrow. And then there's like these different categories. Sometimes it can be in a song. Sometimes it can be over somebody. Or sometimes it, it can be directed to God. Okay, make sense? Questions on that? that that's kind of review. So, so let's pick it up now. Uh, we, we had to kind of uh, buzz through this. But if uh, you're in Lamentations, just turn back a few pages to Psalm 12. And I want to show you some of these features here that we had to rush over last time. Because as you're reading through your Bible and reading through the Psalms, I want you to be able to begin to identify some of these things. So I said Psalm 12. Psalm 13 actually is what we're going to look at. So Psalms of Lament are just that. They're songs. That's our genre, right? It's a song that's particularly related to the expression of grief or concern. Um, Lament Psalms can be corporate, as we read this morning, or personal in Psalm 13. And uh, here's the pattern that we looked at last time that it follows, okay? That there's some sort of turning to God for help. There's an expression of a concern or a dilemma. There's asking God to intervene and help. 
And then there's a trusting of God and a reaffirmation of his character, word, or particular promises. So watch how this works in Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? What's that? It's a returning to God, isn't it? Right? You know, he could, uh, you know, David could have gone to his counselors. He could have gone to his wives. He could have gone somewhere else and said, I don't understand this. But it's he's turning to God and asking for God to help in this particular situation. So how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? What's the concern or dilemma that he's expressing to God there? What's that? Yeah, he feels abandoned, doesn't he? He says, how long will you, he says, will you forget me forever? So he's feeling like God has forgotten him or he's been abandoned. If we go on, he says, uh, he says, how long will you hide your face from me? Kind of the same thing. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? He's saying, you know, how long am I just going to be stuck in my sorrow? Feeling like you've abandoned me. And then he adds to that, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? And, and uh, yeah, we, we recognize that um, David had many experiences where he was running or fleeing from enemies and those enemies seemed to be prevailing. In fact, he adds to it down verse 4. He says, he, he says, my enemy might say, I have overcome him. My adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. So he's talking about a few things. He's saying, it feels like God's abandoned me. It feels like he's left me in my sorrow. There's no hope. And it feels like my enemies are prevailing over me. And those are the concerns he's expressing to God. Okay. Then what happens? <clears throat> what happens next? Yeah, he trusts God, right? Yeah, he asks for help. And what does he remember? What does he recall? Yeah, his love, his character, right? Uh, verse 5, But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So you see that there's a reaffirmation of trusting God. And particularly here, he talks about his loving kindness. That, that's a technical word. You guys know the word, right? It means something like loyal, faithful love. If you could take God's love and God's faithfulness or trustworthiness and glue them together with J.B. Weld, right? That's the word. It's love and trustworthiness or faithfulness, right? And he says, wait a minute. God's love never fails. So even when I feel abandoned, even when it feels like my sorrow is never going to change and the enemy's winning, I can remember and trust what? God still loves me. He's still working. Yeah. To what? He asked God to enlighten him, yeah. 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 Very good. That. Yeah. That's exactly right. So yeah. If you look back at verse uh, five, there he says. Um, uh, oh, I'm sorry. For verse three. Yeah. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Enlighten my eyes. Yes. Give. Help me understand. Because it starts off with, how long? I don't get it. I don't understand. Help me understand. And so there's there's a petition there. 
uh, asking God to intervene and help, trusting in God. So, so part of that requesting of God, often it's, you know, God fixed the problem. Often it's, but often it's God help me to understand or help me to remember or help me to deal with this. So requesting God's specific help is a feature here, isn't it? Um, so, you, so you see the pattern, right? And again, the pattern isn't always there. Sometimes you'll see elements left off. Sometimes there are other things that, that go as accessories. But that's the main sort of outline that you're going to see in a lament psalm. And again, one of the things I'm going to suggest is that God didn't put these in our Bible so that we could go, oh, that's neat. God put these in our Bible so we could say, oh, there's a pattern to follow. And I'll develop that more later on, but I just want to familiarize yourself with some of this, okay? So, now, in our culture, I put this up last time, some of you talked to me about it, so I wanted to put this back up. In our culture, we have been highly, highly influenced by a book written by a person of last century, a secular, atheistic, non-Christian author, uh, the book's called On Death and Dying. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is the author. Some of you have heard that. But even if you've never heard of Miss Ross, you've probably heard of Grief Stages. And, and somewhere along the way, you, know, you read it on social media, you hear it on the news, you know, some friend mentioned something at a funeral, the Grief Stages. And again, we'll, we'll talk more about this later on, but I just want to expose you to this to recognize that the, the the narrative that you and I are going to hear from the culture, and probably we've adopted this already because we live in the culture, is that grief involves certain stages that you have to move through. And what Kubler-Ross said was, in order to end up a healthy human being on the other side of your grief, you have to walk through these stages and you have to walk through them in a particular order. And... Uh, she had an inter- again. She had a very interesting biography in that she spent a lot of time watching people die or getting the latter stages. Made some observations. Uh, her problem, of course, is she's not bringing a biblical viewpoint here, and, and she she turns description into prescription. Right? She made some observations, and then she says, "Well, here's what we should do." And the problem is that's that's never a reliable way to learn what is right. We don't study what unbelievers typically do. And then say, well, that's the pattern to follow, right? What, what we need to do is go to God's word and say, what do we do with grief? So if you've heard about grief stages, if you've been counseled about grief stages, uh, we're going to talk about this because what the Bible's going to say is the Bible's going to give us a better, better alternative. And it's not that everything she says is wrong or misguided, but some of it in particular is ungodly and unhelpful. So we, we, we don't want to follow the five grief stages is what I'm saying, right? There's some helpful observations there, but God's going to give us a better model to follow. Okay, so let's talk about lamenting in the Bible. Um, mourning or grief can be expressed because of various things. Now we saw some of these things, but I just want to fill this out for you. So uh, turn with me in your Bible. We're going to do a little, little Bible lightning round here. Turn with me in your Bible all the way back to Genesis chapter 50. As you're turning there, here's your double jeopardy question for today in Bible trivia. Who dies in Genesis 50? What's that? Okay. We have one vote for Joseph. 
Jacob and Israel and... Okay, well, let's find out who's right. Actually, you're both right. But uh, the guy I was thinking of is the guy that dies first. Aiden? Yes, yes, we'll talk about that. Okay, so remember... What happens in Genesis 50? Joseph, who's ascended to the power in Egypt, reveals himself to his brothers. And, um, you know, they, they bring Israel, dad, Jacob, back from the land. And he lives uh, in uh, Egypt for his latter days. And then you remember what happens uh, at the end of uh, chapter 49 into chapter 50 is Jacob, Israel, the... Um, the, the father of the 12 tribes, right? He dies. And then that's where the brothers get really nervous because they think well, maybe Joseph's been nice to us because dad's been alive, dad's old, now dad's dead. What's Joseph going to do? And uh, they make up this really, really lousy, pathetic story about uh, dad told us uh, before he died that you should be nice to us, J- uh, Joseph. In verse 5, and Joseph answers in verse 7. So Joseph went up to bury his father. Uh, Look with me at chapter 50, verse 10, as they go to bury his father. Verse 9. Actually, look at verse 8. All the household of Joseph, his brothers, his father's household, they left only their little ones and their flocks and their herds. They went to the land of Goshen. And there also they went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. You ever seen a funeral for a really, really famous world leader? This blew it away, I guarantee you. Chariots, horsemen. That, tell, that tells you what the Pharaoh thought of Joseph, right? Because these are, these are Pharaoh's chariots and Pharaoh's horsemen. And Jacob is just an Israelite. So Pharaoh apparently thought very highly of Jacob because of Joseph. Verse 9, they went up with him at horsemen, horse, chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. Verse 10, and when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And they did it for how long? Seven days. And it was so significant the Canaanites who were in that land saw the mourning. You know, so these foreign people that have no idea who Joseph is or who Jacob is, right? The, the foreigners that are watching the mourning ceremony conclude this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. So it, it drew a lot of attention from the, the, the leaders around. So the death of a loved one is a common way that lamentation or grief is expressed we see other examples um, in 1 Samuel uh, and in 2 Samuel. Do you remember who dies at the beginning of 2 Samuel? And Saul and Jonathan. And uh, you can turn there or you can follow along with me or you can just listen. In First Samuel or 2 Samuel chapter 1, uh, Saul dies, Jonathan dies, and David writes... A song grieving, lamenting uh, for Saul and Jonathan. And uh, are you guys familiar with the word dirge? D-I-R-G-E, dirge. We don't use that very often. 
but a dirge is a song of grief and particularly a a funeral song or a funeral uh, poem of sorts right and so David this is a second Samuel chapter 1 verse 17 now listen to listen to the vocabulary David chanted with this lament over Saul and Jonathan and then the song comes out not surprising King David wrote a song to commemorate not to commemorate but but to express his grief over the death of Saul and Jonathan okay uh, in the in the New Testament you remember where uh, the the young lady dies and Jesus brings her back to life in Luke chapter 8 and, and they talk about lamentations Acts chapter 8 where um, Stephen dies and there's a lamentation there so lamentation or grief often is expressed because of the death of a loved one secondly if you're still in uh, in the arena of Samuel there don't go anywhere we see grief and sorrow expressed because of a tragedy or a sorrowful situation a tragedy or a sorrowful situation so in first Samuel chapter 7 uh, verse 2 uh, the men of Kiriath Yarim came and they took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. Now listen, this is 7-2. From, from that day the ark remained at Kiriath Yarim and the time was long for it was 20 years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Why are they grieving to God? Why are they mourning and expressing that to God? It's not because someone died. What happened? The ark is not where it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be in the center of the city. And it's in Kiriath Yarim. When Lisa and I first went to Israel, we stayed in a, a bed and breakfast at the foot of Kiriath Yarim, which is right where the, the ark stood for 20 years. And... Um, but that's not where it's supposed to be. And so they every day that that ark wasn't in the center of the city where the people uh, would gather in worship, they grieved over that. So when there's a tragedy or a sorrowful situation, this is where we see it in the prophets. Um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, they talk about the fact that you know the, these bad things are going to happen. Uh, people invading tragedies occurring and people mourn and lament because of those sad situations Jesus in Luke 23 uh, is uh, being crucified and the people are lamenting the sad situation that Jesus is being crucified <coughs> and then the final category and as you can see I think this is the most frequent category in the Bible is people mourning or grieving because of sin or the consequences of sin. So, for example, um, we see if uh, we look at Jeremiah itself, the book of Jeremiah, which gives the background for lamentations. Uh, Jeremiah talks in chapter 4. If you want to turn over there to Jeremiah chapter 4. Not surprising that all the prophets are represented here, right? Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel... Amos, Micah, the prophets are, are well represented here. Why? Because the prophets are largely calling the people to repent and grieve and mourn over their sin and particularly sometimes over the fact that judgment is coming, God's discipline is coming 
And that is something that they should grieve over. You know, if, if you miss it the first time, when you sin and you ought to respond in repentance, which includes grieving and mourning over your sin, if you miss that and God brings some discipline to get your attention, we ought to grieve over that too and mourn over that and say, this, this disciplinary act that God's bringing in my life because I sinned and didn't repent. So that's what we see often in the prophets. Look at Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 8. Um, in, the context of, uh, in the context, God is talking through Jeremiah about the fact that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, Judah is going to be um, ransacked and carried off into Babylon. And in chapter 4, verse 8, God tells uh, Jeremiah, For this, put on sackcloth, lament and wail. Why? For the fierce... Anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. So grieve and mourn and lament. Why? Because God's hand of discipline is still coming. You can't stop it. And so many other examples there. Uh, James in James chapter 4 says, How should you handle your sin? Be miserable and weep and mourn. Let your laughter be turned to sorrow. Mourn, grieve over your sin. Amos talks about grieving over injustice. Joel talks about grieving and mourning over the coming day of the Lord. Micah, Ezekiel, Lamentations itself, right? It all happens there. So that gives us, again, if we just kind of go... What I did there, guys, is I went from Genesis to Revelation looking at every, pretty much every instance of mourning or grief or lamentation, and those are the three categories you get. So that kind of gives us a, a bird's eye view of what lamenting and mourning and grief uh, are caused by. Now, this is interesting. Let's talk about the language of lament. Okay, I'm, I'm going to take you to uh, Hebrew and Greek grammar school just for a second. And, and this may be interesting to you, or it may be you feel like, uh, I, I, don't, I don't do well with that. But, but just, just stay with me for three minutes, okay? The vocabulary of the Bible in describing lament and grief and mourning is rich. And so if, uh, if you're interested in this, I put all the vocabulary there along with dictionary entries. Um, safad, safad is the most common word in the Old Testament to describe grief. And you'll see there, there's different things here, right? It, it can be to, to wail, to sing lament for the dead or mourn for somebody. Um, misfad, which is the noun form, Safad is the verb. Misfad is one of the noun, means an actual funeral ceremony or mourning rites. You can see how it's derived from that. Naha or nahi. Naha is the, um, uh, the verb to wail or lament. Nahi is the noun, lamentations. Kina or keen. Again, kina is the verb. Uh, or, no, excuse me, kina is the noun. Keen is the verb means a funeral song or dirge or to sing a funeral. That's the word used to actually describe the book of Lamentations. In Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles describes the book of Lamentations and calls it a kinah, meaning it's a funeral song or funeral dirge. That's where we get the idea of Lamentations, the name Lamentations. Tania and Ania. Sounds like a 70s rock band, doesn't it? Uh, ta- no, that's not. Um, uh, Tania and Ania... And ana, those are parallel words with the idea of mourning, the noun, or to lament in grief, the verb there. 
Aval means to mourn or to put into mourning or observe mourning rites. So, so all of these, and if you've studied Greek and Hebrew, you, you know, these are very, very Semitic words here. Safad, Misfad, Naha, Kina, Taniha, Aniha, Ana, and Aval. Those are all, that, that's how Hebrew sounds, right? Well, when we get to Kapto or, kap, or Kapetas, different, right? That's a Greek word. So here's your Old Testament language, and then here's where your New Testament starts. Kapto is one of the most common forms, uh, common words in the New Testament for grieving and mourning. And you know what it means? To beat. Not like drums, but like to beat your breast, to, to, to beat yourself in mourning and lamentation. And that was one of the expressions there, right? Um, kapetas, the, the noun form, means mourning or lamentation. Threneo means, uh, excuse me, threneo, this is an, an eta, threneo, uh, express oneself in sorrowful tones, to mourn or lament, to express oneself in a song, a grief, a hymn of grief, to mourn for somebody. And you see how threneo parallels the Hebrew vocabulary here of I'm, I'm mourning or I might actually be singing my grief or mourning. So this is interesting. The Bible links grief and sorrow and mourning to singing and music. And poetry. Even in the vocabulary, the words are linked there. So again, I don't know if that's interesting to you or not, but it gives you a sense of, you know, just reading the, what do the words mean? It helps us to understand something of what lamenting actually looks like. And then I thought this was fascinating too. Very often, words of lamentation or grief or mourning are paired with other words. So the most common one, uh, yalal, means to howl, means to howl. Now, we don't do this as Americans, do we? You, you, don't, you don't see, like when you read in the Bible, and remember the, the teenage girl dies in the Bible? And there are professionally hired lamenters that came in, and what were they doing? They're howling, they're weeping, they're crying, right? That was part of the culture. One of the things, guys, that we've done, and I don't know, we'll talk about this, I'm not sure if this is a good thing or not, we have in largely internalized grief in our culture. We've made it an individual internal experience rather than something that is expressed in public. And again, we'll talk about whether that's good or not. But in the Bible, grief is almost always something that's expressed. And I think we can learn from that. So yalal means to howl or lament. Baka, to weep or weep for someone, usually a dead person or something. And kadar, um, this is interesting. The last one and we'll go, okay? Kadar, the word literally means to become dark. And, and metaphorically, it means to be um, dull or even dirty. You say dirty, not, not dirty like I rolled around in the mud, but dirty like my clothes aren't clean. My hair's not kept, my, my makeup's not on if you're a woman. It, it, and that's how people mourned is they put on um, clothing that was untidy, non-fashionable, as an expression of their grief or mourning. Yes? They are. Yeah. Yeah, they are. Um, yeah, so you see... Um, Sometimes it does that in, in, in other languages as well, right? Um, yeah, even the, the Kadar, yeah. And, uh, uh, and uh, Klyao, let's see, no, excuse me, uh, 
Clio, that's how you say that, Clio, means to weep or cry or bewail, often for the dead in all that. Yeah, Yalal uh, is definitely onomatopoeia, right? Because it's like, if, if I say Yalal, and if I'm wailing, it sounds very similar. That, that's what Joan's getting at, is the, the word itself sounds like how it sounds when you're wailing. Okay, uh, we'll come back and we'll talk about God and grief next time. Okay, I don't, this is interesting or not, but um, I think we have lots of really good things to learn along the way. So let me pray. Uh, Father, thank you uh, that we can um, spend some time just learning what you say about sorrow and grief and sadness. And I pray, Lord, as we turn to you and as we learn to uh, walk with you through these hard things, thank you that you care about us to meet us here and give us instruction and guidance and, and that we can look to you in our grief and sorrow. Thank you, Lord, that we have a great Savior and we know that one day he will wipe away every tear. And that gives us a great confidence uh, that though uh, the world is broken and we rightly grieve, uh, that one day that will be put to an end. Uh, we're grateful, Lord, in Jesus' name.